This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Ancestors in the struggle for human dignity and freedom, I am here to represent the struggle that has gone on for 300 or more years. A struggle to be recognized as citizens in a country in which we were born. I have had about 40 or 50 years of struggle, ever since a little boy on the streets of Norfolk called me a nigger. I struck him back. I had to learn that hitting back with my fist, one individual was not enough. It takes organization, it takes dedication, it takes a willingness to stand by and do what has to be done when it has to be done. A nice gathering like today is not enough. You have to go back and reach out to your neighbors who don't speak to you. And you have to reach out to your friends who think they are making it good and get them to understand that they as well as you and I cannot be free in America or anywhere else where there is capitalism until, until we can get people to recognize that they themselves have to make the struggle and have to make the fight for freedom every day, in the year, every year, until they win it. America's chickens are coming home to Russia. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and welcome to Our Common Ground. This is the sanctuary for black truth in America. I'm Janice Graham, and I thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We hope that you are continuing your efforts to be safe, and to protect your family, your community, and the people that you love and cherish. Today, October 16th, 2021. 
today is the anniversary, the absolute anniversary of the Million Man March, a major event, a major movement in America, in our journey, and in this struggle. And uh, we are so pleased to be able to have with us as our guest tonight, Dr. Raymond Wimbush, who was one of the major proponents and advocates for the Million Man March. And after more than 50 years of advocacy, scholarship, um, he is now an Our Common Ground witness from the bridge. Looking back, what we have lost and what we have gained. And we thank him uh, for joining us tonight. Um, we have our episode of Word Up in our second page, and tonight we're looking at a 1973 interview on Tony Brown's journal with Dr. John Henrik Clark. And we hope that you will stick around in the second hour for that. Um, on Thursday night, uh, Our Common Ground Media and Communications was very proud to present through our TruthWorks Network channel, If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny. And it is um, examination of the fictitious dystopia written originally by uh, Margaret Atwood, and uh, adapted in TV by Hulu Productions. And what we are doing is an examination of what happens and the potential if America fails and we fall into a total fascist uh, society and we are all looking and standing on the brim uh, with many of the elements of the Republic of Gilead as told and created by Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid's Tale. And we had our sneak preview on Thursday night, a two-hour examination of the dystopia of the Republic of Gilead with Dr. Karen uh, A. Rotzenhoff, who is really the American premier expert on uh, teaching dystopia. Uh, She's at uh, Connecticut Central University, and what an interesting, exciting, and riveting uh, time that we had in talking with her about this work, and we looked at um, slavery, post-slavery, and many of the elements of the struggle of black people, which is um, under underlined in this dystopian society. And we hope that you can check out the um, the 
broadcast on TruthWorks Network on YouTube. It was my first time on broadcasting from YouTube. It it was uh, interesting, and we'll talk more about that. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And we are very, very grateful to the senior producer of If America Fails for the fine, the excellent. I mean, it was excellence in this whole notion of engaging in discussion about a myriad and diverse number of issues that's raised in the story of The Handmaid's Tale. And I really encourage you to um, go to TruthWorks Network at YouTube and check it out. Uh, Tonight we are going to be in conversation with Dr. Raymond Winbush, who has been an our common ground voice for many, many years. Uh, And what we're reflecting on is uh, my idea that while the urban crisis is not new, especially for black people, it is very different today than it has been for more than 50 years. There are several broad demographic and economic developments that have altered urban life. Um, These have made archaic the typical kind of social welfare and urban policy strategies emerging from the nationalist government since the New Deal. And recently, the Democratic Party certainly has been more reformist than the Republican Party in some important areas. Uh, Its policies and strategies are still defined by an interest in an economic foundation of the corporate sector, but Democratic and Republican administrations have failed to respond effectively to the needs of the city. I have um, long argued that the necessity of black leadership in the development of a third party because the black community and its leadership must play, will play, does play an important role positively or negatively, no matter how you see it, in developing and defining political relationships with other communities of color especially. But some black leaders have made very little attempt to reach out um, to the classes of black people in this country, um, is essentially exchanging that kind of focus and trying to heavily address divisive American political game of ethnic leapfrogging, this whole idea of people of color. Too many black leaders, elected, appointed, anointed, whatever, have opted for access to power rather than challenging or seeking to hold actual power. And we're going to talk about uh, that with Dr. Wimbush tonight uh, to talk about the issues of the landscape of black life and, and community. For those of you who have not 
been familiar or met him or engaged with him or read many of his um, publications and books. Dr. Wimbush is a research professor and the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University. And as a scholar and an activist, which I know him as, he is known for his systems thinking approaches to understanding the impact of racism, white supremacy on the global African community. He writes, he's a consultant, he researches, and has been instrumental in, in many decades in understanding developmental stages in black males, black policy, and its connection to compensatory justice, relationships between black males and females, and the infusion of American studies into school curriculum, and the impact of hip-hop culture on the contemporary American landscape. He has served as a faculty member and administrator at a number of universities, Oakwood University, Alabama A&M University, Vanderbilt, and Fisk Universities. Over the last 40 years, he has established numerous important projects to raise awareness of America's race relations and their impact upon the lives of black people. He received grants to further his work from the National Science Foundation, the Cleveland Foundation, Job Training Partnership, Pitney Bowes, Ford Motor Company, Kellogg's Foundation. And in 2000, Dr. Wimbush helped organize the first international conference of the National Council of Black Studies in Ghana. And uh, he also was the founder of the Race Relations Comfad at Fisk University that ran for many years. His books are The Warrior Method, a program for rearing healthy black boys, Should America Pay, Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations. And his latest book, his last book, Belinda's Petition, A Concise History of Reparations for the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Um, And we have interviewed him at the time of the publication of all three of those books that uh, have a prominent place on our bookshelf and in our recommended reading at Our Common Ground. Dr. Raymond Arnold Wimbush, welcome back to Our Common Ground. Did, did you have to mention my middle name? <laughs> How you doing, Joanna? <laughs> wait, wait, Ray. I just discovered it like Thursday. Oh, God. And I went. <laughs> I always keep that secret. I don't know why, but, you know, so I, I don't know what my parents had in mind when they did that, but. Anyway, well, I'll, and I'll just, it, it, it never again. occurred to me that you wouldn't be an author or an Amsterdam, but you are an Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Arnold, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and I it's to, good I, to have you back, Doctor Wimbush. It is so good to have you back. I'm, I have missed you. Um, I know that you have been busy. Uh, so much has happened since you were with us last year um, that I can't even begin. But, you know, we have people, new people in our audience. You know, things have changed a little bit. 
people are still going for the corporate media, not the independent. Uh, so a lot of things have changed around here. I live in Florida. Did you know I live in Florida now? I remember when you moved down there. Sure I do. I did know. I don't know where in Why Florida. Why didn't you call me and ask me, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I don't know why you moved there, but that's, you know, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But I, I will tell you, the bottom line is my brain was so much of getting out of the Trump administration before the slave catchers caught me okay. that I was just over-planning, <laughs> over-planning. <laughs> Uh, I, I but see it's, what it's you're so, saying. Yeah, it's, it's so good to, to have you back. Uh, and, you know, this is the place of my roots. But somehow somebody has not been feeding the tree. That's all I'm going to say about that tonight. But anyway. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, you know, we've had some troubling stuff and a lot of destruction. Um, As um, I say, I have been saying that no matter what was happening prior to the Trump administration, we are now gutted. And I wanted to talk with you. I I wanted to talk with you about a couple of things. Your, Your sense as a as an urban analyst. And I want people to know that both you and I have been in this struggle for over 50 long years. Time. We, a long, long time. Long time, yeah. We were kids when it started. Yeah. And yes, we, we have, the, our generation is in grief. Because whatever progress our whole lives were spent in advocating and pushing and making happen is dwindled away, and our grandchildren are where we were when we were 16. Let's talk about that. I mean, part of it, and I guess I'm really going to plug my latest book, which – is a, called the Osiris Papers: Reflections on the Life and Writings of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. We wrote this book after Dr. Welsing predicted in late December of 2015, right before um, the election year of 2016, that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency. Uh, he did, and nobody believed her at the time because it, you know. The primary, you know, it was kind of Jeb Bushy type of time and stuff like that. So uh, I thought going, you know, I think that Dr. Welsing's analysis of the system of white supremacy is not only prophetic, but it's something that we all need to be acquainted with. Uh, Her famous book, The ISIS Papers, you know, is critical to understanding what's going on in the world today. And um, I I think that a lot of what is happening right now is because we as black people don't understand all of what's going on 
because of the system of white supremacy. Neely Fuller's famous quotation, who was Dr. Wellesley's teacher, was that if you do not understand racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works, everything else you else think you understand, understand will only confuse you. Well, only serve to confuse you. Right. And I think that many of us are confused. For example, let me give a quick example. Um, We really thought that Donald Trump, you know, was going to, quote, act right as a president. And what I mean by act right, that he would not do some of the things that he wound up doing. I believe, as well as others, that Donald Trump's entire presidency was a response to Barack Obama's election. While we saw, you know, Barack was like a moderate to a conservative, but he maintained the system very well. Black folks thought he was a good role model. You know, wife, beautiful wife, two beautiful children. I think that we underestimated how angry white America was with him. We gave him what we considered our best, and they, in response to that, gave us whom they considered their worst. And we see the results of that right now because white people simply are not used to being a minority. They don't make good minorities. And when they saw Obama up there, they started feeling more of their actual minority status that they have throughout the world. So I think that we have to understand how white supremacy works and how it's working right now. Well, I think a a lot of people are beginning to claim the language of white supremacy. And, And that's a beginning because I remember when I first started broadcasting, and I was using the word white supremacy, and people were blanching at me. (laughs) Right. But I do think that you're absolutely right, and I've I've long argued that. Um, Donald Trump was white America's response uh, to Barack Obama. That's right. White supremacy's the, the the ideology of white supremacy is that nothing that is sacred to white people can be held by black people. And the presidency right. was one of those things. And you're absolutely right. Um, Dr. Cress Welsing was ringing the bell. She did. And for 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 those people who didn't understand it then. They understand it now. But it raises an issue, Ray. It raises the issue of, as black people, we have always been the arbiter of the future because we translate the present very well. Um, That's right. And the past. And the past that we have been trying to ring the bell for America and even the white left thought 
that we didn't have and responded that we didn't have the right or the privileges to ring the bell and nobody listened. Because there's nothing that you just said that we haven't said on these airwaves that most black talk radio hosts was saying even during the George H. Bush era that it was coming. Um, And and we also know, we also know, Janice, that, you know, so, you know, I heard you say at the beginning about political parties. We also know, again, if we understand racism, white supremacy, that even though we, you know, slavishly give our vote to Democrats, and this does not mean that we should definitely become Republicans at all, because I'm not even sure what that means anymore, but we would know because of Clinton's administration, even going back before George Bush, that they would start abandoning us if we or if they saw that white voters were abandoning them. So we see right now uh, about this uh, infrastructure package that, you know, it's been whittled down. But the first thing to go, one of the first things to go, were things that were going to directly impact black folks. For example, the HBCU, uh, initially they were going to donate $45 billion to HBCUs. That has been whittled down to, I think, six or either five. I've got to check those numbers. So, and there's articles now being written. Uh, they are uh, being ready to abandon black voters and, uh, because they know that white folks are mad. And that's what, you know, uh, what's his name? Bill Clinton used to call triangulation. He said, be symbolic with black people in order to get their vote. Uh, say things and continue that symbolism. But if white voters get upset, you know, abandon the black voters because they know we'll always come back to them. And he called it triangulation. And it's worked. Mm -hmm. And it's working right now with the Biden administration. Let's talk about the Biden administration uh, from an urban um, strategy and a policy strategy point of view. Um, I have noted that over the last four years, there has been a lot of centrist and conservative commentary that the ur- that that what we know as urban is changing, and mm. thereby policy approaches and initiatives have to change. In your work right. as the d- director of the Urban Research Center at Morgan, what are you seeing and what's your take on it? Well, the most frightening thing that we've been seeing is uh, that there's a lot of black folks. We, I mean, we had a huge turnout in the 2020 election as well as in the 2018 midterm election. But increasingly, we're seeing black voters who are becoming more cynical 
about the Democratic Party. Now, they, they, we have seen no change. In fact, we saw a major shift in the Republican, I mean, the anger, hatred, malice that black voters have toward the Republican Party because Trump, I mean, it's easy now to say and hear within, you know, black beauty and barbershops that the Republicans are racist. And they don't, they being uh, the Republicans are not going to abandon that racism. Interesting enough, black folks are now saying more forthrightly than they did, let's say, under a Bush administration, that the Republicans are racist. And so the other thing that we've noticed is that young people, and this is a good thing, young people are more interested now in voting. Um, than they were a few years ago. If that is that is a, a plus that came out of two things, the Black Lives Matter movement as well as uh, the, the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, I'm seeing more, my students at Morgan, I'm seeing more interest in electoral politics. I, I've got one uh nephew who's now running going to run for office in ohio and a few years ago that was kind of like well you know i don't know uh but now i'm seeing young people really engaged and that's a good thing well i i think that uh it certainly is a good thing but one of my concerns and it's something that you and I talked about and I've talked about a lot on this air, um, and I could have probably been fi- fined for it, uh, and now I'm out of federal government prison as of July, so I can talk about anything that I want to talk about. And let's talk about how certain kinds of policies has diluted the the black population in major cities by use of Section 8 vouchers and by not controlling the local rental markets. Um, So we're looking at urban centers where there have been traditional black communities are just simply being diluted, and so organizing and activism is also being uh, disassembled and diluted. Uh, I'm, I'm right. real concerned about where the young people are. Are they dis- that are going to be the activists today's activists? Are they going to be centered uh, in a way that they can't? Uh, can't organize. Now, in Atlanta, that's not a problem because you've got young people at at four, H, four HBCUs in New Orleans. You've got two major HBCUs, but you've got Hampton and Virginia isolated. You've got Lincoln isolated. In Washington, D.C., you have uh, Mega Evers and, and Howard. But how do these young people begin to organize with the kind of dilution that has been going on? Well, it's been difficult. Um, You know, 
where we find a lot of activism is where there's HBCUs. I mean, that's yes. just a fact. Uh, mm-hmm. So Nashville, you've got three there. Actually, four. You know, you got Fisma, Harry, Tennessee State, and people always forget about American Baptist Seminary, where Bernard Lafayette is. Here in the state of Maryland, you have four HBCUs. Uh, who recently won a lawsuit about the past history of racism directed towards them in terms of funding. What young, I think that black people now, or black young people now, are organizing more spontaneously, and frankly, I see less. They're organized, but they're more they don't have infrastructure. One of the things I worry about with is not only me, the Black Lives Matter movement, is that if you and I, Janice, got out on a street corner and let's say uh, let's say we wanted to pick at Disney since you're down there in Florida, and we took four signs in front of the Magic Kingdom, the news media will immediately say that we're Black Lives Matter. During the 60s and the 70s, you had SCLC, NAACP, the Black Panther Party, the Republican New Africa, SNCC, and and so many organizations. Now everything is collapsed into Black Lives Matter. And if you look at J. Edgar Hoover, one of his, you know, this whole Black Messiah thing that he talked a lot about, he said that one of his tasks in the 1970s when he was annihilating the Black Panther Party was to have one huge organization of black folk because he said he could control it best. And that's one of the fears that I have of Black Lives Matter now is that it's it's kind of a homogeneous group of people. And now you see, you don't see headlines about the various, Black groups in our community Not that you don't see any But essentially everything is Black Lives Matter And that was a goal Of J. Edgar Hoover When he was alive Mm -hmm. And frankly Mm -hmm. I think it has happened right now Well that that just goes to show I mean a, a historical example Is what happened with the Black Panther Party And yeah. that is that there were There were chapters In major cities and the chapters mm-hmm. that were the most active, Los Angeles, Houston, Chicago, New York, were targeted by the FBI. Right. That's right. That's wiped right. out. Wiped out. They went to jail or they died. Or were, were they didn't die, they were murdered. So, right. Um, We've got to be really careful about our organizing strategies. But, you know, one of the things that always helped was to be able to go into local areas and organize, you know, like my parents were organized in a different kind of zone than I was organized. In Boston, um, we had a huge black community that had a lot of experience. Mel King, um, oh, God, I can't think of his name. Uh, he, was, he, he just died about three years ago. Um, we had a, a lot of elders who were able to help 
and initiate the activism of college students, even though there were no HBCUs. So I'm, I'm seeing this missing part, and because you are a witness from the bridge and you can see back and see forward as well, I'm wondering if we've got to stop and really begin to understand where activism, where organizing has to happen, because it can't just be within the the old traditional black communities in in urban centers, because they are gone. They are gone by displacement. I mean, if you think about what happened in Baltimore, what happened with... um, uh, with just eradicating uh, the old traditional housing developments and, you know, 500 and some families were displaced by it. In Boston, the same thing. The black people had to go to Fall River and uh, other places uh, closer to Rhode Island to find affordable housing. And that's happening all over the country. So I, I think that as we look back, our our strategies have to begin to to change, but not but in many ways stay the same because Black well, Lives Matter is working in Boston because people yeah, come from the from the suburbs into the center of that activism. Um, and and I want to be clear with the with the audience that Black Lives Matter is not just one organization. There are lots of Black Lives Matter because everybody claim the handle, the idea, the ideology of Black Lives Matter. So we're not just talking about Garcia and the founders and that particular one. We're talking about it as a um, organizing concept all over the country. But, Ray, let's pull back a, uh, a bit. What's your uh, – I, I want to ask you to talk about what you see in this landscape, this this black landscape now, not just the politics, but also the the, the social – engagement, the culture, how all of those are coming together and what we're missing and what we're what we have added in your more than fifty years. Well, you know, Jazz, I mean, I see good and bad. I've become frankly more cynical about what's happening in, among African people in this country as I've gotten older. Um, you know, I think there's pluses and minuses to social media. Um, you know, there's organizing, as you just pointed out, or involving social media. Young people organize differently. Um, what I'm concerned about is how, and I'm not going to name names, but like charlatans on the Internet can rise up with virtually no knowledge of our history and become almost people follow them in like cult-like manner. Uh, mm-hmm. That there's like a lack of us 
even though there's more availability of reading material, but I'm amazed at some of the people who have become, quote, leaders in the black community, you know, ideologically speaking. I mean, I don't like to use the term hoteppers, but they're all over the Internet. Linked to that, I think that uh, young people simply aren't reading. And I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm like down on the youth or anything. They're not reading as much. And in a very paradoxical sense, they kind of swallowed whole the history that has been given to them. During the demonstrations in 2020, during the summer, I saw signs that were being held up saying, this is not your grandmother's civil rights movement. And I said, well, they they probably have been fed a, you know, a hefty diet that everybody in the 60s was singing, uh, we shall overcome and locking the arms and getting beat upside the head. Did they know about the Republic of New Africa? Did they know about the deacons of defense? And I don't find a lot of young people knowing that. Have they read Baldwin? Have they read, you know, Tony Morrison and other people who have written essays that describe our condition? I think that right now, I think there's more knowledge available that we can consume right now but there's less taking advantage of it the way uh, okay. our generation did 30 or 40 years ago. And that troubles me. Um, the other day, I, would, I don't think this is a reflection on the university I teach, but a student, I mentioned casually James Baldwin. That's why I mentioned it a few minutes ago. And she raised her and said, well, Dr. Winman, could you tell us who James Baldwin was? And she had never heard of his name. Now, right now, arguably, there's more information about him and others on the Internet than we have. The places we went to were black bookstores, you know, and to find out information or a soapbox in Harlem or places like that. We have black spaces and places, but now you can get anything and, and good information about anybody that ever lived because of the Internet. So what I'm finding is that there's a lot of people who are, frankly, I call them like black charlatans rising up, people following them and not thinking for themselves. Um, I've been surprised, for example, and then I'll be quiet on this, I'm surprised how many young black people are saying like the earth is flat and that you know, and and serious about this, and I, and it's not just young people. I mean, young people. I've heard people say just all manners of things that if they did a little bit of reading, they would find out that these things are ludicrous. And then it, it especially gets bad when you find, you know, celebrities, you know, saying things, and then people say, "Yeah, well, you know, Cardi B said it." You know, or Nicki Minaj said it, <laughs> yeah, so it must yeah, be true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so celebrity, uh, celebrity culture, and celebrity cults have really gotten mm-hmm. in the way. I think of people valuing 
critical analysis and valuing information and knowledge and facts. And it's not just, and most people would try to say, well, that's that's how the the Trump cult got started. That's how all cults get started. (laughs) You know, um, I was I was very surprised, and I agree with you. I I was very surprised uh, about the response on. Uh, whatever the basketball player's name is, and he wanted to get vaccinated, and he was going to lose three hundred twenty thousand dollars again. Yeah, and the uh, um, um, ninja. What is her name? Um, <laughs> I've been calling Which her one? ninja. Um, oh, you talking about uh, Nicki Minaj? <laughs> Nicki, Nicki Minaj. I wouldn't know her music if. If uh, they blasted it in my neighborhood every night, I just wouldn't know. You don't know W-A-P? The... <laughs> no. Go um, ahead. I'm Go still ahead. I'm still stuck. You know, my 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 ears. Um, and I know that you are very versed uh, about the culture of hip hop, but my my nose my ears are still stuck in jazz and um, black pop. So. <laughs> I'm having a, a real hard time um, <laughs> understanding how Nicki Minaj can say something that, I mean, like gossip about her friend's testicles or whatever she was talking about. <laughs> and, and we are in a pandemic, and she hasn't done her research in 24 months talking about she has to do her research. And people are listening to her and responding to her. And uh, and but you know that's been a long time coming with me because um, when people start talking about the Beehive and blah 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 and Jay Z and all those people, I'm saying you know that's not serious conversation and serious discourse as far as I'm concerned. And and that may be my age, but <laughs> that's where well, I am. No, but I don't think so. I think it isn't your age because, you know, I know if you, okay, let's go back to the 60s. We listened to a variety of music. We listened to blues, jazz, uh, R&B, you know, a bunch of music, reggae. I mean, all of that. Young people's music listening, for example, is much more narrow than ours is and, and, or was. And I think that, again, I think that, you know, it, you know, social media has created some of that or is being pushed mm-hmm. out of social media that you only need to follow a certain amount of people, don't read that much, listen to that kind of music rather than expanding your knowledge of what the world is all about. I blame some of that on how we're using social media right now and how it controls much of our life right now. There's a film on, um, I think it's on Netflix called the, the social dilemma. And I've been recommending it people. And these are, these ain't black folks saying this is white folks saying it, that it's really destroying the fabric of our society. It's why you can mm-hmm. have a Trump get up and say things like he did in 16 that he could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue, I believe it was, and nobody would arrest him. Uh, 
I really believe that we're living in a time now that if uh, Trump and if you, you know, I know certain media don't follow his uh, rallies now or whatever you call them. I think he's on his so-called revenge tour. But I really believe if he got up today or tomorrow and said, I think we should start killing black people, that there would be some white people who would take that seriously and they would do that. And so I think we're. this is why I thought the 60s and the 70s were the most dangerous times in my life because of the civil rights movement, the deaths that we experienced, the, like the wiping out of the Black Panthers. This, to me, is even more dangerous because we're seeing this racism grip the entire world. We're seeing people being shut down. It is against the law. I have three grandsons in Tennessee. It is against the law for them to teach black history as of last week in the state of Tennessee. We're seeing the shutting down of the 1619 Project. We're seeing the use of terms like critical race theory, which nobody, well, black folk know what it means, I hope, but white people are using it as a, a pretense to shut down all dialogue about the history of this mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. and what European white people have done to us. Well, you know, even on this on on this program uh, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, whenever when the the whole uh, debate around critical race theory and the white nationalist movement to eradicate it uh, came up. Um, my thought was that it was simply an extension of the fight against black studies that started yes. in the 1960s. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I, uh, I was waiting, Ray, for universities like Morgan State and Howard and Spelman and Hampton, uh, Virginia Union, to really start reach out and start offering um, critical race theory uh, training to other university professors because it just seems like everybody was getting it wrong. Well, I think it was deliberate. And see, that's how social media works. When you get uh, Tucker Carlson on, and people, keep in mind, you and I probably look at MSNBC, a little bit of CNN, whatever. The number one news outlet in this country right now is still, it remains Fox News. And then these newer groups like uh, what's that station, ONA or OAN? O-A-N-N, O-A-N. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Those, that's where this country is getting its news. It's with white America. And these, if you listen to them, it's total propaganda. It's paranoia. And this is what white Americans are consuming. And the storming of the Capitol. Exactly. And this country loves to fear monger. It always has. And right now, it's like black people, Mexicans, Haitians, whatever, they're taking over this country. You already see that we've had a black president. What's next? And Kamala Harris, mild-mannered as she is, not a threat she, to the system of white supremacy, that she might be the next president. And they're feeding these fear. And now we're hearing for the first time in probably 140 years, the talk of 
there might be a second American Civil War. And there are people who mm-hmm. are stating that. And I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the people that listen to OAN and Fox. I'm talking about scholars are talking about the possibility of a second Civil War. Well, I've been I've been researching and looking at um, the historical events prior, uh, the work of the Congress prior to the Civil War, and um, the discourse between Congress and the President um, prior, just prior to the year prior to the Civil War beginning, and I have been saying, Ray that we're already in it. It's here. Yeah, it is. I mean, when you, when you think about you have Republican governors and you have states that are passing legislation, they have stacked their – I mean, I keep saying that this is not the plan. We are in the middle of the execution. It is no coincidence that – all of these red states now have a majority Republican, conservative, white nationalist right. state legislatures. That's that's well, not by, by by coincidence. That has been the plan all the way. You can go all the way, way back to the Reagan administration that's and right. see that's that. Right. And we're in part three of the plan. So, That's right. Um, you know, I, I just think that one of the things until we until we understand that um, we're we're, we're and, and you know you just you just mentioned how in the state state of Tennessee it is against the law to teach Black history. Right. That is, I mean, it's been education media, education and media uh, that they have claimed and revised over the last 10 years, that's part of the plan. It it is. I I mean, I I just think we had Kim Brown from Burn It Down with Kim Brown last week, and I just think that unless we claim and we support independent media, we are not going to be able to protect our community from the propaganda machine that has was churned up five years ago. Let's talk about the insurrection. What's your thoughts? Did the white people get it right? <laughs> well, it, it, it was an inside job. I mean, and, yes. and this is one reason why the Republicans don't want to do a deep investigation of this. I mean, look, you know, you've been to the Capitol. That is one of the most confusing buildings I've ever been in in my life. I mean, it's like a maze. You have to know where you are going. Secondly, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. just today, they indicted a, a Capitol Police officer who helped the uh, one of the insurrectionists. So this, this is why I say that this is the first time in my lifetime that I've seen government officials, you know, and I'm talking about elected officials, 
like not just McConnell and this idiot down there in Georgia. What's her name? Uh, Marjorie something. Green. Taylor, Taylor Green, Green. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Right. They, at the highest levels of government, and I think that it was let loose by Trump himself, you see people who are willing to say, we are going to bring down the, quote, government of the United States by any means necessary, and we are going to, you know, install a white supremacist in this country. This stuff is not over with yet. It's not over by no, a long it's not. shot. Uh, and, it's and I think starting. the insurrection, it's, it's, right, the insurrection was really, it was a lynch mob. I mean, if you looked at those white people that were there uh, and the idiot black folk who were there, you, you saw white people saying, this is what we do when we want to show our racism and how violent we are as a group in this country. And, and, and again, you've got 70 million people that voted for Trump in this past election. These, Trump is fomenting rebellion. He should have been tried for sedition already. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what my sister in New York is doing, but I thought by now we would have an indictment on him. So this yeah. is going to go from bad to worse. This is not going to get all right. And in the 22, like you mentioned, you know, I read Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale back in 1986 when she first published that book. And I never yes. thought that we would have abortion laws like we're seeing in Texas and Mississippi. I think that they're going to uphold the decision in Mississippi. There's an effort to control our bodies at a lot of levels, uh, our, you know, women's bodies. And I think that this is, this country is right for a fascist takeover, and the 2022 elections, they are going to be the most violent and contended elections in American history. I think they're, they're going to successfully take the House and the Senate. And I think that, by, by and it may be by crook, but they will take it. Um, right. This uh, global Trump criminal enterprise regime mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is set on they understand that they in order to do what they have to do they need it they are doing it without shame they're doing it without fear of the department of justice because we have a Merrick Garland who's sitting on his ass excuse me he's sitting on his <laughs> ass and thinking that he can do a kumbaya with That's right. some of these cases. Uh, the idea that you still have key people, like the person who stole Nancy Pelosi's um, laptop during the insur- during the ri- during the riot, she still right. has not been charged. Not right. been charged. I think that they have got. I mean, when you think about the 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 corrupt and criminal uh, major uh, players in the Trump administration, Bill Barr, Stephen Green, Stephen Miller, I'm sorry. Um, Stephen Miller Miller is still getting a check from the federal government. Yes, yes, exactly. And we don't know who he is. And, you know, and I really do want to talk about 
this January 6th uh, oversight committee. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a break right now, and when we come back, I'd like to talk about that, and I'd like to talk about the Biden Harris administration because I think something quirky is going on within this administration, and I'm not sure, but we're going to do some political gossiping. The other thing on the other side, for those of you who would like, you can call in at 347-838-9852 and um, ask um, ask your questions or comment with Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush, our guest tonight. We'll be right back. Don't you go away. Don't you even move. No. Uh, refresh your refreshments. We'll be right back. It's a bad. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to Truth Works Network. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Janice Graham. Janice Graham. Hallelujah. Girl, said 
Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And you know that Uptown folks don't give it to you. We're here at the Saturday Night Spot, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m. It happens with the eroding of the right to protest and freedom and with uneven distribution of consequences from law enforcement. It happens when people we think are on our side when it comes to social justice simply don't show up. Or worse, shame us for taking action. It happens when we all look at each other and say, this can't last, right? Hoping that it will go away on its own. Meantime, the fascists build militias. When fascism starts to feel normal, we're all in trouble. All the denial, either from fear or uncertainty, is not helpful. We are seeing the execution in America, not the plan. If America fails, the coming tyranny. A 12-week discussion series exploring the possibility, the potential, the now, fascism in America. TruthWorks Network is examination of a fictional dystopia from the lenses and experiences of black people in America. It's The Handmaid's Tale, premiering January 14th, each Thursday, 8 p.m. TruthWorks Network. Can America fail? Are you sure? And we want to make sure that you know that If America Fails premieres January 14th, 8 p.m., every Thursday, 8 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. Getting the spirit in the dark. I'm getting the spirit in the dark. Keep on moving. Oh, you've been grooving. Just getting the spirit. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Janice. And we thank you for being with us here 
at Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. And we're talking about the landscape of black political and social welfare. Ray, once again, thank you so very much for being with us. I've really missed you. I mean, I've missed your voice, um, but I know you are busy. Let's talk about um, the Biden-Harris administration. What's your take on what's going on with this democratically controlled Congress can't get what Joseph Biden says is his agenda through? Well, it's, it's Joe's fault. Look, you got to get rid of the filibuster. I mean, Val Demings down in your state is running on that platform alone. You got to get rid of the filibuster. If you notice with the media, which I call the most evil devil in America, that they have like put less emphasis on the squad, you know, Ilhan and the other folks, uh, AOC. I think that. Look, if Biden wants to get rid of the uh, filibuster, which he could do because Chuck Schumer controls the Senate, he could do it and then get all his legs. But he won't do it. So then you know that it is a holdover from the days of segregation, late 40s, early 50s, when, you know, segregation is the stop legislation dealing with civil rights. You know, I think right now, the, the destruction of the uh, Democratic Party began with the election, and I know people are going to get mad at this, but it was with the election of Bill Clinton when they had the so-called Demo- Democrat Leadership Council. Uh, he was a part of it, of course. Uh, it, it, it became part of a Gore's strategy carried on with Obama and now with Biden. When I grew up in Cleveland, Janice, look, the Democratic Party meant working class, lunch bucket, brigade, common folk. Now it's been, it's like this elitist kind of, you know, we only do things that are politically correct type of party. And, you know, the Democrats have to change that. I was frankly disappointed. You know, I was a Bernie Sanders uh, supporter, and I know that wasn't saying, you know, that, but I thought he came closest to what I believe ought to happen in this country. Um, what really needs to happen in this country is what didn't happen in 1972 in Gary, Indiana, when black folks said we need to form a black political party. We are being Thank abandoned, you. you know, mm-hmm. and we don't want, it's like we're afraid to vote to have a black political party. Told people for years, I said, look, we need to stay out one presidential election. It could have been 16. We could have said, we ain't voting unless you deal with black interests. We thought that Biden was going to do it. And so far, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being he's really dealing with black issues, one, uh, he ain't dealing with it at all. I would probably put it about five as business as usual. Let me let me run something up the poll for you, to you, and see if it holds. 
I'm beginning to think that the Joe Biden, who was on the right of the Democratic agenda for his entire political career, and you probably remember how I was crazed when he screwed up the Clarence Thomas nomination. Oh, God. And you see instances of Joe Biden, even in the Obama administration, dropping easy balls. So let me run, run this up the pole. I'm beginning to believe, because Joe Biden understands how critical expanding the federal courts, expanding the Supreme Court, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, which hires more, who, who, which employs more black people than any other black agency in this country or corporation, for that matter. Uh, and he continues to hold on to Louis DeJoy. The voter oh, rights man. bill, uh, the George Floyd Police Accountability Bill, the John Lewis Bill, the Infrastructure Bill, the Rescue Bill, and I'm wondering if Joe Biden has a shadow agreement with the people who fund many Republican campaigns and if that is what's going on in the background. And we're not we haven't even talked about reparations yet. So when you look at well, when you look at all of the promises he made and we delivered him to the White House, you have to believe something uncanny is going on. Well, it is, Janice. You know, the, the, you know, this. But see, this is like, you know, it's a repetition of what Black folk have been experiencing, really, since uh, Bill Clinton, which is now close to thirty years ago. Uh, we give them our vote, you know, all the time. And, I'm, again, I'm not advocating that we switch it to the Republican Party. I've said that we should boycott one presidential election. And then when black folks stay at home, like if we had boycotted 2016, Trump was going to be president anyway, and he was. We wouldn't have lost anything. And then people will say, okay, we need the black vote, but we have some tangibles. We did, you mentioned the John Lewis bill. The infrastructure bill, which would help black folks, it's been eviscerated practically. All of these, uh, the the George Floyd bill, all of these bills, they they're not moving because Mitch McConnell is still in control. You're advocating now. I can't vouch for your theory, but something's going on. Uh, Kamala Harris has been pushed into the background. You don't even see girlfriend anymore. You don't yeah, see I had to ask and Kim Brown last week was she, was she still the vice president? Yeah, she was I, in Mexico or some damn place. 
Yes. So she, you know, it's like right now, I believe that this administration, I think we're looking at a one-term presidency similar to Jimmy Carter way back in the 70s, a Mm one-term president, Democrat. And I really believe that this is going to, because of these voting restriction laws all over this country, uh, the suppression of the black vote that we're seeing in a variety of ways, I think that Biden may be the last Democratic president for years to come, years to come. And Mm -hmm, I think that's, mm -hmm. again, why I think we're heading into a really, really, not that we aren't in a dangerous period now, but it's going to get worse. And we Mm -hmm. ain't even talking about the environment. Many, many people, many people said that um, as uh, Barack Obama, at the end of his his um, second term, that we will never see another Democratic president. But I think it was the jarring, the the flagrant evilness and confusion and chaos that Trump was so. Incompetent that caused Joe Biden, a Democratic candidate, to be elected. But I think people are also concluding that it doesn't matter. Well, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think that, see, when most presidents lose or when a party loses, they try to say, how can we win the next time around? What the Republican Party is saying right now is how can we cheat better? How can mm-hmm. we perfect? They're not. They're never going to have enough. Like I don't believe. I don't care what people say. I do not believe that Trump is going to be the nominee in twenty uh, twenty four. I don't believe it. I believe they're going to get a guy or, or I don't know about a woman. DeSantis. They're going to get some. DeSantis. Right. DeSantis. DeSantis. It, it could also be dude over in Texas. Um, there's a bunch of these slick Republicans. They're going to get a refined Donald Trump type of person, but it, he won't be the bombastic, disorganized, stupid guy mm-hmm. that they had before. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to cheat better. They're, you know, they said, well, let's get these voter repression laws. We're going to Houston. I talk, my nephew is in Houston. They have one drive-by box in the whole state, I'm, I'm sorry, County. the whole city yeah. of Houston. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and, and Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. It's crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, well um, I, I think that uh, you're, you're onto something, and, but I think that what is the n- most dangerous milestone will be the midterms in, in uh 2022 because if we lose the house we have lost everything we can all go home that's right that's right we can all go home i mean when i retired people were saying you got to stick in there you got to stay in there there was no way to fix the destruction that was going on within that administration i couldn't stand to sit at a table with ben carson not one more minute I know, God. And I retired I, I eight talk. months shy of the next level. <laughs> I just couldn't <laughs> do it anymore. 
Um, yeah. But, but let's do a little gossiping. You mentioned earlier Letitia James, and I'm concerned about what's going on with Cy Vance. Um, because well, see, you got to indict Trump before be, be James. I mean, um, Vance, I believe, leaves office in January. I believe in December. You got December. Get, December. You got to get an indictment literally in the next six or seven weeks, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I thought by now it would have happened, but it well, it hasn't. He's holding grand juries, but they're not announcing when the grand juries are meeting anymore. Uh, that's concerning. The other is there's another suit against uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, in regard to the rape case, and if they don't indict him right. in two weeks, the um, the um, it'll be of limitation. up. Statue of limitation will will um, will kick in. So I'm not understanding what is happening. Um, I'm and and. What is more disconcerting as a, as a citizen to me is what's happening with this January 6th commission. And I don't understand why Steve Bannon wasn't picked up and charged uh, on Thursday. Well, he's been indicted on some other charge, but that's just stealing money. But, you know, but he look, was pardoned for that. Trump is- Donald Trump pardoned him. Yeah, on those charges. But see, right now there should be. I, I think that I think the January sixth commission is going to. I think none of the Republicans are going to uh, testify except maybe uh, with the Senate. I mean, the House Minority McCarthy may go there. May go there. But Trump is going to tie it up in legal stuff. Because they're mm-hmm. going to have this mm-hmm. big debate, and that's what Steve Bannon said. The the issue of whether or not you can indict, you can impeach, but can you indict a sitting president? I think you can, but it is still not settled law because we never thought we would get to this point in American mm-hmm. history. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think Bannon is going to wait out the clock. And, and mm-hmm, like you say, mm-hmm. if, if we lose the House in 2022, all is lost. That's it. Yes. This is game yep, over. Yep. You know, and uh, that's another why thing that. To, no, I'm just saying, black folk have to seriously, seriously think about revisiting what happened in Gary, Indiana. And we have to really seriously talk about a black political party. Well, Ray, how many years ago it was 1986 when I chaired uh, the campaign for a New Tomorrow, which was really a national campaign to revisit Gary, the Gary Convention, and begin to develop um, a national independent, black independent party with Ron Daniels. Um, that has not happened since 1987. There has been no intentional, purposeful um, effort, uh, significant effort, 
uh, effective effort to develop an independent black political party. And that's really sad. That that makes me sad. Yesterday I was very sad because it was the 60th anniversary of SNCC. And, um, yes, yes, it was. was yeah, and, and I didn't go to the conference because I'm scared to death of COVID-19. But... <laughs> I go to the grocery stores. They put the the bags in the trunk of my car, and I keep moving because down here in Florida, these people don't care about masks. They don't care about vaccines. They they care only if they can squash it. So um, um, I think that you know uh, over the I am really mourning the loss of the work of my life and I'm I'm sure you're having some thoughts about about that as right. well. You know, how many opportunities, how many um rejections we had of doing nothing which was not in relationship to or connected to building a black nation and here we are. Yeah, yeah, we really are there, and you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I was talking to a group of you know politically minded people the other day on Zoom, and we were talking about you know a lot of times we always want to talk about black successes, but we also have to talk about black failures, and on a global level, the failure of the you know, the global black community during the 20th century was not having a viable uh, global Pan-African organization. We attempted to do mm-hmm. that in Barbados in 2002. But domestically, the failure was that we did not develop a black political party. Um Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about something with, you know, without its wars, like an, an ANC here in the in this country, in, in, and that's uh-huh. a failure mm-hmm. domestically. And, yeah, you know, right, I've been know writing were, letters. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, I'm a big letter writer, and I've been right. writing. I, I wrote in the last two months. I wrote two letters to Randall Robinson. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, not that I mailed them or anything. But, you know, yeah. he was my mentor very early on. And right. uh, when, I came, when I came back from South Africa in 1972, um, my passion and my dedication was around Pan-Africanism and, and around uh, freeing Mandela and eliminating apartheid in South Africa and eliminating apartheid in, in, in the Mississippi Delta. So... When I look back at all of this, in these letters, I have had to say to people, never forget that you did good work, that your efforts, yeah, you, yeah, you I, I think we all have to be lifted up. I'm, you know, I'm looking at 34 years doing Our Common Ground. It's been 34 years, mm-hmm. and I want somebody wow. to write me a letter and, and say, you know, you, you you, you tried, you did well, uh, and the changing tides um, uh, have washed over so much of our work. Yeah, no. You know? Well, 
Uh, I think what it is, BJ, we got to, you know, I'm in the past the baton phase because, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I do, I do see a lot of things that I really thought would happen. I really thought we would by now have a, a, a national black political party uh, that would at least be comparable to the green party. I really thought that mm-hmm. we were going to have a global African organization. I'm not talking about the OAU or the AU, as they call it now, but I'm talking about an organization that would unite African people around the world. Um, you know, and those have been two things in my life that I've just been disappointed in. And, and mm-hmm. it's not that they mm-hmm. won't happen, but... I don't know if they're going to happen in our lifetime. I've been in one. The bright spot is that I never thought we'd have a national conversation about reparation. That has been a plus. That is something mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. in one sense, I thought it would never happen, but it has happened. So who knows? Maybe we'll see this before we join the ancestors. You know. I know. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think about my early days in in Cobra. And yeah. um, and and how um, I felt that uh, it was never going to happen. That America right. would never um, take the knee to slavery, a shadow slavery but in the has. United States. But it has, yeah. And I think we need to think about it that way. Um, yeah. So. Uh, you're right. There are there are some things that I mean. Um, many people will recall um, that when uh, Barack Obama ran for president of the United States, and it looked as though he was a viable candidate for the Democratic Party, I went back to my 11 year old self when my father bought me the book The Man, which was uh, oh, yeah. the first book written about. Hmm. A black man becoming president, but it was one of the spokes of inspiration to me as a black child to even begin to think about it. And um, yeah. so, you know, the other is after the Black Panther Party was wiped out, um, I I spent many months trying to figure out what do I do now. And then mm-hmm. I went back to my SNCC, new, uh, SNCC roots and found my way. So, yeah. you know, at at our age, I mean, when when I talk to her, I'm, I, I I hope you'll do this project too because you would be a great pro, uh, person to do this project. I'm going. I have invited three or four people to interview me uh, to talk about my my professional career. Uh, talk about my activism, talk about uh, what this radio show has meant to me, uh, talk about myself as a mother and a grandmother, um, so that I can, my my grandchildren will be able to enjoy some of the conversations that I really needed to have with them and the opportunity has not altogether presented itself. Um, and I think I hope that you will do the same, because um, 
we remember. My nephew um, to do that, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My nephew said and, he's going to do it because, yeah, we should lead that with people. Yes, should. yes, yeah. I mean, I love hearing you talk about your love of the the book, the the novel, Beloved. When you talk about oh, yeah. uh, your passion about the characters in that book. Uh, right That's now, right. I'm in a reading group, and we are reading Nothing Personal, Personal by James Baldwin. And uh-huh. Imani Perry, who has been a guest oh, yeah. on this show, um, she wrote the forward, and Eddie Glaude wrote the back forward, the backward, mm-hmm. the right. or the after after epilogue, epilogue, Epil- yeah. yeah, and and they both, right. they are younger than we are, their experiences right. in in the, their the the zone in which they matured as black people was different from the zone in which we found ourselves. And I tell you, I have cried, I have wept reading some of that book because, you know, I love James Baldwin so much. I still yeah. call him Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Baldwin. So uh, I think we have to do those kinds of things so that people feel that um, our legacy as individual um, activists, advocates, lovers of black people and aspirationists for a black nation doesn't get lost. Yeah, we um, do. And, and it know, may not be our generation, but you know, I do hope that one day the ancestors will look down on this planet and say they've got a pan-African organization globally and they've got one in the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah, 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 and and maybe we need to say that out loud. Maybe uh, between what Ron Daniels is doing, what um, uh, Sandy Darity is doing, what Tommy Curry is doing, what so many people are doing, that the, we have to have um, a shared mission, and that mission is that at some point the mission has to be uh, a black independent political party because we have no political uh, infrastructure right now. We think it's the people that, the black people that we elect, we think it's the black caucus, but it is not. It has to be something that we own. Yeah, yeah. Ray Wimbush, it's been uh, a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I do want to mention to people if uh, you can join uh, Dr. Wimbush on Facebook and on Twitter. His books, The Warrior Method, a program for rearing healthy black boys, Should America Pay, Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations, published in 2001 and 2002, respectively. His his book that I keep by my bedside, I still do, Ray, 
Belinda's petition, A Concise History of Reparations for the Transatlantic Slave Trade. And I have to tell you, Ray, that my granddaughter, when she was teaching, you know, my granddaughter is 27 years old now, but when she Mm, was teaching uh, at a private school in Milton, Massachusetts, um, she had uh, she was teaching middle school uh, middle schoolers. She took them out to where Belinda, the plantation. What's the name mm. of the plantation? Um, where Belinda? Tim. Yes, she took them out right. there uh, uh, under the guise of going for an outing. Um, for the afternoon and seeing other parts of Massachusetts. And she read them the history of the plantation and some portions of your book because she enjoyed it so much. Ray well, Wimbush, thank you. And let me just thank say you. one more thing. that My mm-hmm. newest book, which was published in 2020, again, is the Osiris Papers, Reflections on the Life and Writings of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. And we certainly want to say about her life, um, we have not had as many treasures offered to us as we should, but she was one of our treasures. And I know that Absolutely. you were, as her, as as um, she was your mentor, and a lot of people didn't do right by her, but I'm telling you, a lot of people did, did, and you were one of them. Yep. Thank you so much, Ray. And uh, you, you got to come back. I'm going to have a reunion. You know, I'm going off the air at the end of Black History Month. Will be okay. my. Um, but I'm trying to groom as many independent black broadcasters as I can, and your colleague, uh, Dr. Jared Ball, and oh, yeah. Kim Brown, who started her broadcast career in the Baltimore area. We're we're just trying to do it. Uh, El Michelle Odom, who has been an administrator for Our Common Ground, is now a senior producer at TruthWorks Network, and that's going to be her baby. Um, she, she's she's reluctant, but it's going to be her baby. So thank you so very much for joining us tonight, and for those of you who thank are listening, you, you stay tuned. Be- thank you. Uh, we are going to spin the rest of our time tonight in a new ep- uh, new segment of our common ground which we're going to call we're going to call word up it is a time for learning and listening and listening to uh our elders tonight we're going to be focusing on Dr. uh John Henry Clark uh who uh for those of you who don't know is a famous early black historian and professor. So you stay tuned, and we are going to be right back.
thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Wow, it was really nice talking to my friend. I have been friends with uh, Raymond Wimbush uh, and comrades uh, since like 1975. So uh, it was good talking with him and having him at our common ground. It's also good to have you with us tonight. Uh, We have um, a special segment, um, Word Up, and tonight we're focusing on a 1973 interview with uh, Dr. Clark, who is an American historian, professor, and pioneer in the creation of Pan-African and Africana Studies and professional institutions in academia starting in the 1960s. He was born in 1915 in Union Springs, Alabama, and he made his transition on July 16, 1998. Dr. Clark was a guest at our Common Ground in 1986 and 86. Uh, he was he was educated at Columbia University, New York University, and California Miramar University. And as we always do when we mention our elders, his parents were John Clark and Willa Ella Clark. We'll talk with you right after this. We've been everything in history from St. Tabaphon. We are complete people, and we need to start looking at ourselves as a, um, as a complete people. And I think that once we uh, convinced ourselves that we're black and beautiful, we'll stop saying it and just go ahead and be black and beautiful and release a whole lot of energy for more important things. All right, since you said that uh, J.A. Rogers was a chronicler that related events, mm-hmm. What is there in these two volumes in terms of facts that would be beneficial to black Americans in the regaining of our lost heritage? Um, In terms of facts is that J. Rogers goes through history and places in proper perspectives with documents the role of the black personality in history beginning from the origin of man in Africa to the present time. And I'm saying that black people need a measurement of the role that they have played in history. And Rogers was the pioneer in the search for the black personality in history and his role. And this is important because through Rogers 
in his uh, first volume on the old world, you can see what the uh, Africans achieved and what the Africans not only achieved within Africa, but the conflicts among African and African and how these conflicts were, were settled. Egypt was invaded from within Africa, which began the decline. That was the Kushite invasion led by that magnificent trio of black generals, Castor, uh, Pianchi, and Tahaka. And the interesting thing about these men, especially Tahaka, the last of the trio, is that he not only controlled what is Kush, who is part of Ethiopia and the Sudan of today and Egypt, but he invaded uh, Libya and practically all of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Iran, all in, in those areas. And in those areas, he found both friends and, uh, friends and, uh, and, and, and foes. Now, if he found friends and enemies, if he found people in the Middle East willing to fight with him, he a black general. This tells you that uh, color wasn't such a major factor, but the power, the rise and fall of power. Uh, Rogers tells us some other interesting things in Volume 1. Actually, I wish we had time just to deal with Volume 1 alone, because it tells you of the early European invaders, invaders of Africa, after he finished telling you about Akhenaten and the great queens of Egypt and that woman, the first truly great woman in history, uh, Hatshepsut, um, about the black generals who served in white armies, Cletus Nigra, who was one of the commanding generals in the army of Alexander. And he deals with the romance around Alexander, which shocked the hell out of some people because Alexander not only did not um, die worrying about um, no worlds to conquer, he died in a drunken stupor, and all this is documented. Uh, he threw a dagger at Cletus Nigra, the black general, who differed with him in front of his uh, high command, and um, he died in self-reproach. Uh, after this act, not worrying about uh, no more worlds to conquer, it's another thing. And another aspect of Alexander, which I call, that I call the so-called great, that we need to take into consideration is Alexander was a magnificent diplomat, probably one of the most brilliant diplomats ever. He really wasn't much of a warrior. In fact, one of the main reasons why Cletus Lagra could kid him because he had saved his life on the battlefield a number of times. And Alexander, after he got into Asia Minor, was ridiculing Greek soldiers. And Cletus Nigra, the black general, told him, you wasn't, as for Greek soldiers, you really, in effect, not so hot yourself. And he reminded him of the time that he um, saved his life. And Alexander was a little bit embarrassed and insulted by having this mention in front of his high command, and, uh, and he was drinking too much at the time anyway. Now, that takes a whole lot of romance out of history to treat Alexander that way, and, but it's documented truth. Well, what are the, some of the statements, facts, allegations that Rogers makes specifically about who prominent white Americans were who he now says were black? Well, he... Um, he said that five of our presidents were black, and considering the fact that the ones that were black seemed to be about the poorest presidents we had, 
I'd rather not bother about getting into names, but advise you to read the small book by J.A. Rogers called Our Five Negro Presidents and argue with someone else. But um, Are there any of the families of these presidents alive who acknowledge that one of their ancestors who was a president was well, I'll name I'll name one, which uh, because there's been so much writing about it and so much proof and because some of the families are still alive and uh, someone want to run this down. President Harding was, had... Um, Black blood, at some of what we call Negro blood. Mm -hmm. how, how, where is this documented? Um, there were several articles on it. Uh, Alan Morrison, uh, the late Alan Morrison, used to be New York editor of Ebony, did, his, did an article on it in the first or Negro Digest years ago. But I'll tell you another one, which is why the documents are a little clearer. That's Alexander Hamilton. He wasn't a president, but he was mm -hmm. very prominent. Sure. Alexander Hamilton, whose mother a black woman from the from the West Indies. Are there any other prominent uh, Americans that you can think of that are named in uh, this would be the second volume? Mm -hmm. oh, no, this is no the, that would be the second volume in which he names uh, permanent Americans uh, who are uh, obviously had uh, what we refer to as Negro blood. Mm -hmm. um, Robert Browning, the Englishman, and he, he documents that too. Mm -hmm you know, who had laid court to Elizabeth Barrett. And um, I think Alexander Dumas was one of the people he named. Oh, Alexander Dumas. There's no question about Alexander Dumas. He was a brown-skinned man with a bush. I mean, we don't argue about the Dumas, but there were three Dumases. Understand that. Not, uh, not just Alexander Dumas. We talk about grandfather, father, and son. Now, one Alexander Dumas, black general, uh, of Western descent, was... Uh, second in command to Napoleon. In fact, he was Napoleon's artillery commander in the Egyptian campaign. And when the French were voting for someone to take over the French army, Napoleon won by one vote. In other words, the French were liberal enough at that time to accept a black man as commander-in-chief of, of their armies. I'm sorry they didn't um, elect Alexander Dumas. It would have saved them a lot. And, a whole lot of things Napoleon did was useless and nothing but the washing of French ego and costing a whole lot of French money. The one thing I don't think Alexander Dumas would have done is to go into that icebox called Russia in the dead winter time. <laughs> he wouldn't have played no fool like that. <laughs> now, the other two Alexander Dumas, you need to, under, you need to separate because most people merge them. Now, the father of French adventure literature, uh, the Three Musketeers and the like. That's one Alexander Dupas. Now, the, um, the author of Camille and the romantic tradition in French literature, that's his son. Now, although father and son did not get along, but they stem from the same, um, from the same club. So there was actually three Alexander Dumases. One was a military man, served under Napoleon, who lost uh, command of the French army to Napoleon by one vote. The other one who began the adventure literature and the other one who began the romantic literature. And um, he was somewhat of a prince of Paris, a devil with the ladies, but there's, there's no argument about these people. Well, how do you, how do you suspect mm -hmm. that these statements and beliefs are going to be accepted by white America and by the white historical community? Well, they're not going to accept them re readily, but uh, if they read the documents, is not much of an argument.
Well, they can always show you who, their documents, can't they? Well, they can show me that documents, but uh, one cannot, uh, ex cannot uh, outbalance the other. I mean, uh, I've seen uh, there's a whole lot of things that white historians say that has nothing to do with documents at all. They just open their mouth and say it. <laughs> like, Christopher Columbus discovered America. Now, he's discovered people here. He discovered a whole lot of people already in America. So he discovered America. Okay. Now, uh, and they just arbitrarily say that uh, the Europeans brought naturally civilization. And actually, the Europeans destroyed more civilization than they brought. And I can go to white documents and prove this. I don't have to go to my documents. According to their documents, I can prove uh, that they destroyed more people and more civilization than, um, than they built. All right. Another thing which Rogers brings up in another one of his books called Africa's Give to America is the pre-Columbian presence of Africans in the so-called New World, that Africans were here not only before Columbus, but according to Professor Wiener in a three-volume work called Africa and the Discovery of America, he may have been here before the Indians. Now, the original documentation on this came from white historians. And so many times when a white historian is arguing with a black historian, the one thing he will probably have to do is to go back and argue with the white historian from which the black historian got the original base information, and he extended that research further than the, uh, than the white historian. Now, the white historian is in a bad fix right now because he's hung up with a lie, and because he used to open his mouth and say something and people believe it without question, and now they are questioning it. I can snow him under with documents, and mostly documents written by other white people repudiating him. So I'm not worried about the document war. I know I can win that one. Professor Clark, how do you distinguish between the words Negro and black? I, I don't distinguish. I, mean, I, I distinguish between the word, the way I held the word Negro is by dismissing it. And I, dismissing it because, I dismiss it because there's no such thing as a Negro, uh, because there's no Negro people and no Negro land. This is an, an adjective that somebody made a noun out of and slapped on a people against their will. And I dismiss the word Negro. Um, the word black uh, can relate to a whole lot of people, and it can become con confusing. You see, people must relate to land, history, and culture. And this is what limits the word black. Because if you limit, if you say black, and what is the black land? I'm sure you're going to talk. If you say English, an image comes before your eyes, good or bad. The changing of the guards, Buckingham Palace, you know, stout hearted, the Bengal Lancers, you know. If you say French, you know, good cooking, great lovers, Napoleon, all that. All, all immediately you've got an image. But you say, Negro, what comes before you? No images, really. A condition. And a people is not a condition. A people must have a, land, a name that relates them to land, history, and culture. And so, therefore, the name of a people, if it's going to be authentic, cannot be black, that can refer to how the people look. The name of the people have to relate to the land of origin. Now, no one is having any difficulty saying Italian-American, Greek-American, French-American. I don't think they should have any difficulty saying African-American or Afro-American, as the, as the case may be. 
Now, these are people who are black in the main. But let's get something straight. All Africans are not black. That black is the prevailing color in Africa. There are Africans who have been, not been mixed with any white people at all, who are like brown. And they've always been that way. And they're just as African as the blackest of the Africans. So if we got hung up on a narrow definition like black without explaining that it has elasticity that extends beyond a person being jet black, then, uh, we, we get ourselves into another trap. We get out of one trap and get into two. So now let's qualify what we're talking about when we're black. But when we're speaking of a people on a world basis, then let's relate them to land, history, and culture so we'll know what we're talking about. Until someone creates a nation called black, uh, from which we emulate, or uh, black land, or uh, black oria, or uh, black borough, then uh, I'm afraid that the word black is rather limited. Right. <clears throat> I'd like to thank you very much. You've... Uh certainly said uh, quite a few things. Uh, the book, The World's Great Men of Color, is undoubtedly going to cause quite a stir and be of amazing educational value. Thank you very much, Professor Clark. Thank you. And that was Professor Dr. John Henrik Clark in 1972, in 73. It was our pleasure to have had him and to be able to say to this ancestor that, about this ancestor, that he he is in our common ground voice. We're sorry um, that we were unable to take your calls tonight, but we couldn't find a place where... Uh, we wanted to get in as much as we could. Don't forget to join us um, uh, next week here at Our Common Ground as we go out tonight. I want to honor uh, my mentors on the 60th anniversary of the founding of SNCC, Bob Moses, Kwame Toure, Ella Baker, and Ruby Sales. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you next week, every Saturday at 10 p.m. here at Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. We're so grateful to be able to spend our Saturday evenings with you. We wish you well great health, safety, and a liberation spirit. I'm Janice Graham, here at Our Common Ground, the Black Truth Sanctuary, each Saturday, 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you.